You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 Brand Spark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Sometimes our commander-in-chief, ideally upholder of the law, fails to inspire us. Take the 1970s. Well, I'm not a crook. Or the 90s. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And now the 21st century. I'm an extremely stable genius. You're about to hear two attorneys make sense out of a legal system some say is a train wreck. Here are Royal Oaks and Connor Oaks. This is Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. And welcome to the podcast, which is about the top legal stories of the week. Uh, the name Too Many Lawyers uh, suggests that we think there are too damn many lawyers and too many lawmakers or legislators and judges. We're all out there speaking legal nonsense and you need us to decode it. That's right. And we are legal analysts. We're both lawyers. I'm a baby boomer libertarian. Connor's a millennial progressive. And we talk about three stories every week. The three stories this week. Big week, Connor. Should oh, yeah. Robert Kennedy's killer be paroled? The initial pass by the parole board to two commissioners. They said yes after 15 tries, uh, 15 no's. They finally got a yes. Second times the charm. Yeah. Second topic, uh, should Scott Peterson, uh, who killed his wife Lacey and his unborn child, Back in the early part uh, of the new millennium, should he get a new trial that's on the docket uh, in court and on our docket? And finally, their Nirvana album uh, with cover with the naked baby. Is it child porn? Is it lascivious? Should the baby, who's now a little over 30, be able Uh to recover a million dollars? We'll get into all three of those topics and we'll get uh, into our guest verdict game at the uh, end of the episode. I'll give you a little tease here. It's about a Pentecostal preacher gone very wrong. We'll see if Connor can accurately guess the outcome of his legal travails. Uh, before we get to the first story, and one other thing at the very end, uh, Connor told me about a really interesting tweet he saw, and it relates to the world's greatest time management book I will tell you Ooh, about. Can't so wait. We'll, we'll get into the tweet, and we'll get into the time management book at the end of the episode. Before we get to uh, the Sirhan Sirhan story, however, you know, it's nice to advance the stories that, that we talk about earlier. And we talked a few weeks ago about ridiculous warning labels. For example, um, a, a pill to help you get to sleep. There's a warning that says could cause drowsiness. Yeah, you know, th- that kind of thing. There yeah. were a, a dozen fun items. Well, to advance this story, Connor, I spotted a, a news item this week and uh, I guess I'm changing my opinion about the warning labels because this story suggests that unorthodox warnings are appropriate. Uh, A 25-year-old man in India 
uh, suddenly died after using a high-powered epoxy resin instead of a condom when oh, he and his no. girlfriend decided to have sex. Oh, yes. no. He had organ failure. Uh, they decided to use this uh, epoxy. Who knows what went into the decision-making process? Oh, my God. Uh, they were feeling amorous. They didn't have a condom, so he used this, and apparently he was using some illegal drugs as well, and the, the combination was not healthy. And so I'm going to admit I was wrong when I was making fun of unorthodox warning levels. There should be a warning on the epoxy tube. Do not use for birth control. While you're also high on, say, meth. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess that's it's a that double sounds, whammy. Sounds reasonable. Yeah. Uh, it's a tragic story, but, you know, it helps us. Uh, I'm, I'm, I think we all learned a lot. Yeah, exactly <laughs> right. Uh, the other item I wanted to get into is you mentioned the, apparently people are using some sort of dog dewormer as opposed to, oh, I don't know, Moderna and yeah. Pfizer and oh, so Oh, yeah, it's on. blown up. So um, at, at a certain point uh, several years ago, um, there was a, a single study about the use of a drug called ivermectin, uh, as a, a, which is commonly used as an antiparasitic. It's a prescription for humans, but you can get it over the counter at like a stable or cattle uh, supply store uh, to to deworm uh, your horses or your cows or whatever else. Um, they also have dosage sizes for dogs. Um, the side effects for uh, these animals uh, are much less important than getting rid of intestinal parasites. Um, but for humans, this drug is a second line uh, of defense drug uh, for some some parasites uh, like intestinal worms mm -hmm. or scabies, they generally have you do uh, a, a course of a different drug first because it's less harmful to your system, um, puts less pressure on your intestinal system. Uh, but it's sort of the, well, we really got to give it to you. It's the, the elephant gun in terms of antiparasitics mm -hmm. uh, in humans. But it's a, a prescription. It's, it's a dangerous drug. It can really damage your uh, intestines. Uh, and uh, because it's got to damage the uh, parasites that are hiding in your intestines sometimes uh, or the rest of your body. So this drug, ivermectin, was the subject of one uh, uh, study that said this might stop viral replication hmm. in a culture, a, a tissue culture, i.e. A, a Petri dish. Mm -hmm. In a Petri dish, it stops viral replication, they said. Okay, so maybe it would be an effective antiviral drug. It's not been tested in animals as an antiviral. Mm -hmm. It's certainly not been tested as, as a, uh, in humans as an antiviral. And yet, based on this one study that got circulated around, uh, you know, on the internet, irresponsibly misread and extrapolated from, people started saying, "Well, this is the secret antiviral drug that the, the government wow. wants to stop you from using uh, to uh, prevent and and treat COVID." And so people have been using COVID. In fact, there is, uh, it's it sold out of every, you know, store uh, everywhere, uh, you know, cattle supply store all across the, the American South, especially where there's a lot of mistrust uh, about uh, vaccines, particularly, but in, in not just the South, this is a, all over the country and in, even in some other countries problem because of vaccine disinformation and misinformation online. And in fact, there was a big study, there was a big, uh, 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 article this week about a prison in the American South somewhere, I don't remember the state, where they were using this unapproved drug on really? prisoners to treat the prisoners who'd caught COVID. And that's obviously a horrific scenario that brings to mind lots of other situations where uh, authorities have, have misused drugs uh, on prisoners or tested drugs on prisoners. And this is something where, uh, you know, 
it can have massive serious side effects, especially when prescribed in, you know, horse and cattle dosages. These animals are five, six, ten times as heavy as we are. They definitely need different dosages. And also there are different additives that they put in there that might be safe for a horse or a cow or a dog mm. in that dosage, but are not safe uh, when consumed for a human. Even, abs- you know, aside from the ivermectin itself, which is not safe for humans to consume. And this is a great example of how, you know, people are just so distrustful of authority figures yeah. and they are so susceptible to misinformation and disinformation online. I mean, you're seeing people, you know, run from the real drug, uh, the the vaccine and say things like, well, I don't know what's in that. And then go take horse dewormers and you don't have any idea what's in that. So scary. Well, it hopefully is. publicity will get out there. Yeah. There was another very weird story. I don't know if you read about it, but uh, they're actually testing on inmates um, injecting bleach into the buttocks of inmates at the uh, Florida State Penitentiary what? at Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, it was oh it's God. in the news. Yeah. It's yeah. it's not not what It's very effective at do. killing viruses, bleach. That that brings to mind a great uh, comic strip that circulated years ago by a, a great uh, Randall Monroe is a great uh, a comedian and comic and author and, and comics uh, hmm. artist who has written a, a comic strip called XKCD which is often funny and often about science literacy and also just you know wacky um, and he's done it uh, uh he, he hits it out of the park all the time and he has a great study about uh i mean a great uh, comic about studies that show things that show up in in petri dishes right and he's got, <laughs> he's got a, a comic strip of a scientist standing on a chair holding a pointing a pistol down at a petri dish and it says we tested it in the 38 special uh stops viral replication in a petri dish <laughs> yeah it sure does so does bleach so does everything else don't put it in your body <laughs> so so does an open flame yeah exactly <laughs> All right. Topic number one. Should Robert Kennedy's killer, Sirhan Sirhan, be paroled? Let me take a minute to just kind of set the stage yeah. with the story here. It's been a while. Uh, in 1968, Robert Kennedy was running for president. Why was he running for president? Because Lyndon Johnson, the sitting president on March 31 of that year, announced to the shock of everybody, except Lady Bird, who I guess had a little inside notice, I ain't running for re-election. This whole Vietnam thing's gotten out of hand. So Eugene McCarthy, the anti-war guy, had been running, and he's thinking, oh, this is good for me. Whoops. Moment. Here comes Robert Kennedy. Uh, and so... Known as RFK. RFK decides to run for president. And of course, we know that this was just five years after his older brother, John Kennedy, had been assassinated by Lee Harvey Oswald acting alone, according to a lot of people. <laughs> so, uh, and of course, in the same spring, Martin Luther King was struck down. He was assassinated by James Earl Ray. So now we're into June 1968. Robert Kennedy uh, has just won the California primary. And so he is on his way. And a lot of people think he could have won the nomination and he could have beaten Richard Nixon in November of that year. So here's a guy who's poised maybe to be president. Enter Sirhan Sirhan. He's in the kitchen of the Ambassador Hotel where Kennedy was giving his victory speech. He is a citizen of Lebanon. He is furious with Kennedy because Kennedy has advocated giving 50 or 60 jets to Israel Mm -hmm. earlier that spring. And so he is going to take him out, and he does. He shoots him dead. Now, some people, including Robert Kennedy Jr., the anti-vaxxer, some people believe Sirhan didn't do it, that there was a second gunman whose bullets actually killed Kennedy. So that controversy continues. But bottom line is he was convicted. Uh, Sirhan was. He was sentenced to death. His death sentence was overturned in 1972 when the Supreme Court said, you know, there's just too many questions about capital punishment. It's, it's off. And everybody on death row, including Charles Manson, was spared the death penalty. Instead, right. they got life. And that's where Sirhan was. So 15 straight 
requests for parole by Sirhan are turned down over the decades. The 16th came up a few days ago. For the first time out of 16, the Los Angeles district attorney did not send a representative and say, hey, we put this guy in prison decades ago, and we're here to tell you, Mr. Commissioner, two commissioners, uh, do not let him out. The new district attorney in L.A., George Gascon, did not feel it was appropriate. His attitude is, I put bad guys in prison. I don't weigh in on whether to let them out decades later. Mm -hmm. So that's the first issue. Uh, And we know that the the two commissioners voted to say, yes, he should get uh, parole. Uh, He's shown remorse. He's an old guy in his 80s. He's not going to go out and shoot anybody else. Yes, Kennedy was famous and so on, but... This is the right thing to do. So the first question I wanted to tee up was, does Gascon have it right? It seems to me like it's okay to multitask. You put the guys, bad guys away, but also, as we've seen in the Charles Manson killing and countless others, DAs generally do show up and weigh in. Do you think it's, and now it's sort of a new trend, it's definitely a minority, but but Gascon and a few other DAs are saying, not my job. Yeah. Are you comfortable with that? I mean, it, there's there's two ways to look at it. On the one hand, maybe it's, it's a DA who doesn't want to do extra work, doesn't want to have to, you know, catch flack for his opinions or her opinions and say, I'm not going to weigh in here because I'll, I'll just be, you know, criticized for it. So what's the point? What's the, what's the point of it? On the other hand... It might well be that Gascon and the others who don't want to weigh in on this sort of thing uh, are trying to set a new and different precedent because in the law, generally, the DAs are the prosecutors who want to put that, like you said, put bad guys away. And if they show up, they're overwhelmingly going to be influenced by the fact that they've been the prosecutor. They've been trying to put the bad guy away. It seems like an extension of their job to say, yeah, keep this guy in prison for longer. When really, what's the value of that person's input, right? What is this person's job? This person's job is to be the prosecutor, the advocate for the state and put guilty people away. And then you've got a defense lawyer on the other side who says, no, this person, you have to prove that this person is guilty before you put them away. Uh, You know, go jump through all the hoops and, and, you know, make sure that innocent people don't get locked up. What is the value of bringing in the DA during the parole recommendation process? Is the parole board going to get information from them that they don't have? I would hope that all that information is in front of the parole board. This person's been in jail for probably years when you're making this decision. All that information's out here. What is the opinion of a prosecutor but another voice added to the cacophony of people saying, bad guy, stay prison, no out, please, bad, nimby, scared, violence, crime. Like, that's what the story is going to be in every parole people hearing. People don't like full sentences? Well, sure. I mean, it's just, you know, it's the buzzwords you hear shouted from a crowd, NIMBY, crime, scared. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's that's what a parole hearing opposition is, is like when people say, should we let somebody on a parole? I mean, you could lock me up for my failed uh, failure to pay parking tickets. And, and and when I have a parole hearing, if you had it open to public comment on the internet, you would get those same comments. He's a criminal. He's a bad guy. You should lock him up because people's intuition is criminals stay yeah, off the streets. Your podcast fans would come to your support. That's true. Absolutely. But there would be some some naysayers out there. So it really, it really comes down to what we think the value of the DA's opinion uh, is coming into the situation. I 
I don't know what value they offer other than uh, I was in the room, but my job in the room was to lock this guy up. So I don't know. What do you think? I, I, th- of- I think it's very helpful to have people who's who were intimately involved, even if it was earlier generations of DAs. And, yeah. you know, what if nobody uh, does show up? Nobody bothers to show up and, and argue uh, against You're right. This a is a big, famous That's a bad case. idea. I mean, big, famous case, but not every case is like that. Maybe you need somebody. Yeah. So that leads to my second question I want to run by you. Should okay. the fame of the murder victim have an impact on parole? Right. The fact yeah, of right. the matter is, you know, the, the, all the Manson people who've been denied parole dozens of times over decades, the suspicion is <laughs> it's because they were part of a notorious yeah. crime and, and their political issues and so on. And so some people, including Nicholas Goldberg, who's a columnist for the L.A. Times, wrote a week or so ago, and he said, you know, if Sirhan had shot a fast food worker, uh, he'd have been out long ago. Yeah. And so why should we perpetually keep him in into his 80s and 90s just because it's RFK? Nothing against RFK, Goldberg is saying. But, you know, a human life is a human life. Yeah. I kind of disagree because this is a guy who tens, maybe scores of millions of Americans in 1968 wanted to be their president. And that chance was snuffed out by this assassin. Uh, Who the person is, who the victim is, matters in another context. We have the death penalty in California. We have things called special circumstances. There are a dozen or so ways you get to the death penalty as opposed to life without parole. One of them is if you shoot a cop, if you shoot a fire uh, fireman, if you shoot a witness who's going to be testifying against you, if you, you know, if it's multiple murder, if it's if a torture is involved. So we look at different factors in deciding whether to flip t- from life without parole to uh, to li- to capital punishment. So I, I think it's reasonable to, to say, you know, the fact that it was Robert Kennedy and this guy assassinated a would be president. I think it's reasonable to take that into account. Yeah. It isn't just a matter of, is he sorry, and is he so infirm he's not going to shoot anybody else? Now. Yeah, I, I get I get that attitude completely, and I do understand the the idea of weighing these other factors. And those other factors, um, you know, we, we have those other factors in the, the notion of, of death penalty, punishment versus first-degree murder and second-degree murder, whatever. It, it, it sort of escalates things because for, for different reasons. We have one good example. So you said kills a cop, Right. That is probably because it's not because cops are more important than random humans. It's the idea is that killing cops in the commission of a crime, uh, you know, if you're if you're if you're going to kill, uh, kill a cop, you might be dissuaded from doing so. Right. You might be. And cops, we think of as people being on the front line all the time. And so we want criminals to be scared of the idea that, oh, my gosh, a cop might be killed uh, in this process. So I better not do it. Right. That is, is some sort of like uh, incentivizing uh, concept. It, it's not that we think killing a, a cop is an inherently heinous thing. It's that we think cops are in the line of fire all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, random citizens are also in the line of fire all the time, but you can't really make it uh, uh, worse. You have to have some sort of discrimination here uh, between uh, those acts so that there is an escalation and so that you can maybe prevent, prevent uh, some sort of death. That's one sense. But then you have another uh, sense where... We, we do it because of the moral status of the person who's who's committing the crime. Right. It's not that we think people who kill cops are worse than people who kill uh, cashiers uh, in during robberies. It's that we think when you kill somebody and you use torture uh, in the process, that makes you a worse person. If if you 
kill somebody who has political ambitions. It's not that your crime was worse. It's that we use that as a proxy for getting to are you really committing an act of political terror? Right. Are you trying to uh, terrorize the population, which is worse than just uh, incidentally have not to terrorize, take out of their hands the ability to elect Robert Kennedy president. Yeah, exactly. We we we, we have a, a sort of an expansive nef- uh, notion of terror post 9-11 where we say, you know, it's basically just trying to co- uh, achieve a political goal via a crime. Right. And uh, you're trying to influence politics and whether or not people are scared. And I don't think anyone's scared that, well, now I'm going to be assassinated because RFK was. No, they're terrified of the, of the fact that our democracy is under threat, that our our democracy is not stable, right. that we can't achieve the political aims we want to achieve because there are terrorists out there committing bad acts. So I can see why someone would say killing a politician uh, and, you know, thus snuffing the hopes and dreams of all his, his constituents and, and voters and supporters um, is worse than killing a random person, even though their lives are equally morally valuable. So I understand that. The real question in my mind is, that that this uh, that Sirhan Sirhan's parole brings to brings to the forefront is is there some sort of sort of forgiveness that we have for people? Is there some sort of uh, you know ex- a, a maximum an extent to which we think punishment is effective? And do we think prison can reform you? I mean, the guys have been in prison since what year was it? Nineteen sixty-eight. That's a long time. I mean, he's seventy-seven years old now. He was. Uh, you know, 60, uh, 68, he was born in 44. So uh, he was, uh, he was a young 24 man. years old now. 20s, right. I mean, he spent well more. I mean, he spent two thirds of his life in prison. If this guy can't be reformed by prison, then, you know, uh, what what is the point of prison? Are we are we still punishing him or do we have some sense that once people are hopefully changed and reformed by prison, they can be paroled and let out and be maybe some sort of member of society, you know, a, a resource valuable to their friends or, or loved ones or family or whatever? Can they maybe get a job and be productive? Can they live a, a, a happy life or whatever? Now, it's weird to think of like, do we want this person to try to improve the lives of anybody else? Do we want him to sort of fill a job in our economy? Is that a motivation for letting people out of prison? Oftentimes, when he's an assassin, a political assassin, it's like, why do we care about any of that? We can make an exception for him. We could, we could just say rotten hole forever because we don't care about the normal conceptions of justice or reform or whatever because he's so bad. He's Charles Manson. He's an especially heinous, notorious criminal. But really, is that the way we should think about it? Should there be exceptions for, oh, the really bad guys that, that sort of subvert all of our, of our thoughts and, and motivations for normally how we you know, cure criminals or solve criminality or whatever else? I don't think so. I think we have to treat them the same, or at least put them on the same scale, even so, if they're one end of the so scale. So you mentioned a political angle. Let's talk about the political football aspect of yeah. the Sirhan parole. Uh, the two parole commissioners uh, held the hearing, and as is customary, they announced it and their decision the very day of the hearing. So mm-hmm. they obviously had it pretty much the cake was baked. It was in the can. Mm-hmm. And so they announced it. Now, what happens next? The full parole board... Uh, 17 uh, people has 90 days to review it. And then after they make their decision, because they can reject or accept this recommendation, then Governor Gavin Newsom gets to decide. He has a month to uphold the parole board's decision or reverse it or modify it. And he has said through his spokespeople, well, you know, we'll look at it. And you can bet that in the next week or two before the recall election, all the opponents of Gavin Newsom are going to be saying, no, 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 don't play hide the ball on us, Gavin. Yeah. We want to know what your attitude do. is. Yeah. What? Don't tell us, well, you got to read the briefs and so on. You're 
preventing voters on September 14 from knowing, from knowing whether you're going to spring Sirhan Sirhan or not. Now, on the one hand, of course, it is reasonable to say, I got to see what the parole board does right. and I'll read all the papers. On the other hand, he probably has an attitude and you know there are going to be political points to be scored. So are, are you predicting this actually could have an influence uh, on the election uh, in September 14 or is it going to be swamped by all the other issues? I think that the, the tactic of uh, Newsom saying, I'm going to wait until all the, you know, the evidence is in and, and make this decision later. Uh, I think that that is 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 going to be convincing to a lot of people, anybody who's sympathetic. I think but a really people. spiffy TV commercial could be crafted True. showing Gavin Newsom, oh, I won't tell you, I just waffling, don't know, waffling. Hiding. Do you voters yeah. want Sirhan Sirhan on the street? I That's think true. if the opponents, whether it's Larry Elder or Falconer or whoever, if they were smart, they would, true. they would consider doing that. Yeah, you're probably right. Hey, when we come back, we're going to talk about whether Scott Peterson, killer of Lacey Peterson, should get a new trial. So stick with us on Too Many Lawyers. But in the meantime, Connor's going to tell you, as usual, how to rate and subscribe the podcast. Yeah, so check us out. Uh, go to your podcast platform, the one you use to get this uh, episode, uh, and go to our podcast page. And of course, that button that says subscribe is already clicked, because that's how you got us, probably. But please leave us a rating or a review, a written review uh, as well, because we really appreciate them. Uh, you can let us know what we're doing right or doing wrong. Uh, and if not, you uh, if, if you want to send a, a, a really angry, flamey uh, review, just <laughs> put it in an email and send it to Royal. I'm sure he'll appreciate it and read everyone. <laughs> exactly. Stick with us. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. I'm Connor Oaks. So Scott Peterson, uh, let's uh, recap what happened in terms of his murder case. 2002, Christmas Eve. Uh, he is alleged to have killed his wife, Lacey, and he dumped her body in the San Francisco Bay. Uh, it is alleged he killed her so he could have an affair uh, unencumbered with a woman named Amber Fry. Uh, Lacey and her unborn baby's uh, bodies were uh, uh, recovered. They surfaced months later. Uh, their remains washed ashore in April, close to where Scott Peterson told the cops he'd gone fishing the day he went missing. Interestingly, the evidence against him uh, was pretty sketchy in terms of hardcore forensic evidence. There was one hair, Lacey's hair, stuck to pliers on Peterson's boat. And, of course, the defense lawyers said, well, you know, she was the wife, and it's not a shock that you might have a stray hair here and there. But they, he had the affair going, his impending fatherhood, he had financial problems, the location of the body was so close to where he said he went fishing the day of her death. He had taken out a $250,000 life insurance policy on Lacey. So, in spite of Mark Garagos's best efforts, a celebrity attorney, he was sentenced to death. Mm -hmm. Scott Peterson, not Mark Garagos. Uh, now, enter a juror named Rochelle Nice, or Nice, I'm not sure. She had a nickname during the high-profile trial. I believe they called her Strawberry Shortcake because she had bright red hair. Hmm. And she was very uh, outspoken afterwards about how Scott Peterson should have taken a stand and looked them in the eye and talked to them, and she was unhappy about that. She co-authored a book about the case with six other jurors. Here's the problem. During the voir dire jury selection process, she was asked, were you involved in any lawsuits or involved in, you know, been a victim of a crime? And she said no and no. In fact, two years before the murder, she'd sought a restraining order for fear that her boyfriend's ex-girlfriend would hurt Rochelle Nice's unborn child. And 
in 2001, the juror's boyfriend beat her up while she was pregnant with another child. So the allegation that has just surfaced now is that she lied when she was asked these questions about uh, being a victim of a crime or being involved in a lawsuit. And her explanation now is, well, I knew about the restraining order, but I didn't think that was a lawsuit, which, you know, maybe it's true. Maybe it's not true. Right. And so the California Supreme Court uh, actually last year ordered the trial judge to consider if juror misconduct was so significant that it denied Peterson a fair trial and they upheld the conviction. But but they said that the judge made some mistakes in jury selection. And as a result, the Supreme Court wants there to be a new look at whether he gets capital punishment. Yeah. So so for for all you out there who have not been involved in a jury before, uh, the super short version is there's a process at the beginning of the trial called voir dire or jury selection, during which the lawyers and the judge uh, who's, you know, not who's totally impartial, theoretically, uh, the lawyers and the judge all examine the uh, potential jurors where they grill them with very personal questions. They can go over their uh, their, you know, personal history, their medical history, their relationship history, their work history, their friends, their family, what their friends and family do. They have to know uh, a lot about these jurors right. and get into, you know, anything that could be relevant to to make these jurors unable to be impartial. We have this notion that there's a, the ideal juror out there who's not emotionally invested in one outcome before the trial starts, whose looks is going to weigh all the evidence fairly as it comes in and hasn't prejudged uh, anybody involved. Uh, you get questions, uh, generic questions, like say there's a, a cop involved in the in the uh, uh, trial, say the, the cop might be a witness, or maybe the cop is the, the victim, or maybe the cop is the, uh, the perpetrator. You might get asked, are you a cop? Are your friends cops? Are your family members cops? Have you had bad experiences with cops before? Have you ever been the victim of violence by a police officer? Have you ever filed a lawsuit against a police officer? Has a police officer ever filed a lawsuit against you? In this uh, in this context, the, all these facts might lead uh, a, a lawyer to, to be able to make um, a what's called a four-cause uh, a strike uh, against uh, a motion uh, to dismiss this person for cause, meaning th- there is a reason that is causing them to be uh, unable to be impartial. So they'd say to the judge, please strike juror number six, because they said, you know, they uh, had had had, had a, a, a cop do something violent in the past. And so this person can't be impartial. Um, and then after that process of, of four cause strikes, you have peremptory challenges where you don't have to offer explanations. You just say, I'd like to thank and excuse uh, juror number seven. Uh, and the judge marks uh, down how many peremptory strikes you're using because you only get a limited number. But that is a is a complicated process, a multi-step process where the judge kicks jurors off, then the lawyers kick jurors off for cause, then the lawyers kick jurors off uh, with peremptory challenges, which they don't have to use explanations for. But if they're doing it for a bad reason, like their or their their age or their race or or their gender or something like that, then the other side can challenge it and say, hey, there's a pattern here. They're they're striking all the women, and that's wrong. So this is really complicated process where you can strike people for some reasons, but not for other reasons. There's discretion of the judge. There's discretion of the lawyers. And it's really important that during this whole through this whole process, after this whole process, you end up with a jury of people who can approach this, uh, you know, uh, uh, even handedly and you have good information. If that whole process and the rights of your lawyer are disrupted by the by the uh, jurors lying and saying, you know, I wasn't involved uh, in a, a restraining order issue or I wasn't involved in a lawsuit then we're working with bad information and you have really been robbed of your right to have a proper defense. Now, in this case, 
Did Scott Peterson lose his right to a, a defense in trial by one juror, uh, arguably misinterpreting or intentionally misinterpreting this because she wanted to get on the jury uh, or something because she has uh, a, you know a history and thus an emotional attachment? If if she you know if we could look inside her brain and say. Yeah, she lied intentionally, knowing that really this restraining order uh, related to her ex's, uh, her her uh, partner's ex, uh, threatening her while she was pregnant, makes her emotionally involved to the idea of a husband killing her. Yeah, his, it's not his an wife. outlandish argument. No, it's not. And if you could look inside her brain and say that's why she did it, I would say yeah, that's that's enough for me and, and, to say and, Peterson. Needs and this process that you described is is complicated enough, as you were explaining. The facts here are, are really complicated because yeah. there are actually three separate issues going on as to whether Peterson was ripped off and should get a new trial. Issue number one is what we've been talking about, namely, did the juror lie about her personal domestic abuse situation? Issue number two is something the defense wants to get in front of the court, namely some new evidence that maybe he's innocent. A mail carrier allegedly didn't see the Peterson's dog on a particular day, and the defense claims they can show that this establishes Lacey was alive and walking the dog after uh, Scott Peterson left the house the day the DA says Lacey was killed. So there's evidence that she was alive when the DA said she'd already been killed by Peterson. So that's issue number two. And here's issue number three. I alluded to the Supreme Court decision last year. Their, Their ordering of a new trial on a sentence for Peterson has nothing to do with what we've been talking about. They're interested in some philosophical legal issues about capital punishment, and here they are. When you have a criminal charge against somebody, you only find somebody guilty if they're guilty beyond reasonable doubt. The defense wants the Supreme Court to say, you know what? You should have a beyond reasonable doubt a hurdle specifically as to the basis for capital punishment, like multiple murders, like it was it was a cop or whatever. And further, you, you should have to uh, get an assurance from the jurors that they believe that they're voting for capital punishment because there is a basis beyond a reasonable doubt for that. These are sort of administrative procedural elements so bottom line is, even though this case is decades old and, and hugely high profile, yeah. it is far from over because from the Supreme Court of California on down, uh, there are going to be a lot more procedures and, and hearings uh, concerning. And of course, it's so ironic because Governor Newsom has said, not on my watch, nobody's getting executed. Yeah. So, you know, in terms of the distinction between life and death, uh, it's really kind of academic yeah. uh, as, as far is. as Scott Peterson is concerned. Hey, uh, when we come back, we are going to uh, tackle our final issue, namely their Nirvana album cover with the naked baby. Stick with us on Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. So Nirvana was the big grunge band in the early 1990s. Kurt Cobain, who uh, passed, but... Uh, the uh, the album and his group and the album cover uh, lives on the album was called Nevermind. They used a cover photo of a naked baby, four months old, uh, and the baby is swimming uh, just below the surface uh, in a, in a pool at the uh, Pasadena Aquatic Center. I'm told, and the baby is reaching out for a dollar bill, which is attached to a fish hook. And so somebody thought this was a clever idea yeah. to put this uh, on the cover. And uh, the naked baby is there's. There, the baby doesn't hold anything back. It's anatomically right. correct. 
for the last 30 years, as this baby grew up and became a young man, he has actually participated in three or four celebrations of the anniversary of this album. Yep. I think the 15th and the 17th, 25th anniversary, he'd be interviewed and, you know, no big deal. I'm yep. sure he got some money and He so also on. participated in some photographic recreations of the album as he became uh, uh, older. Um, nice. Yeah. So now he's filed, he's changed his mind. He thinks it's bad that everybody on the planet has seen his junk. He compares it to child porn. He says it's lascivious. He's suing for a million bucks. He wants the, uh, uh, Courtney Love and, and Nirvana and the right. record company right. to pay him lots of money. And doggone it, Judge, uh, an injunction should be issued. Uh, nobody should ever see this picture yeah. of me fantastic. again. This is fantastic. What's your prediction, Connor? How do you think this uh, lawsuit, uh, brand new lawsuit, is going to fare in court? Oh, I mean, he goes down in flames. This is this is, I mean, this is, prime. I'm not a, I'm not a like tort reform now kind of person. I mean, I might be a defense lawyer, but I don't <laughs> think that our, you know, court system is overrun with frivolous lawsuits. I think that actually a lot of lawsuits are very important and the frivolity of some of them is a price you have to pay in order to make sure that people get compensated. But I will say this guy Probably went to several lawyers before he found one that was willing to handle this case, right? This is not a case with a high probability of success. The idea that this uh, picture of a, of a child is um, was child pornography. Yeah, he calls uh, it sexually provocative. There's nothing sexually provocative no, about a naked four-month-old baby, no, no matter what parts of his anatomy no, of you're course. showing. I mean, theoretically, it could be placed into a, a, a an context. awful context, yes. but it was. It was just was, his right. album cover. Yeah, nudity is not per se uh, pornography, as the uh, courts have, have wrestled with over many, many years. Uh, the concept of, well, what's lewd, what's lascivious, what's pornography, what's just art, what's just a photo of, of somebody who happens to not have money clothes on or any clothes on. And the the judges who've dealt with this in the past have come up with a bunch of bad tests, uh, but some of them have been sort of useful to uh, elucidate the difficulty of this uh, situation to decide what's lewd. Judges say things like, I know it when I see it, or uh, generically, it appeals to the prurient interest. That's the famous uh, uh, line that, that one judge used uh, that people repeat all the time, and prurient means lewd and lascivious. So it's just kicking the, moving the goalpost, just kicking the can down the road to, well, what, what, what does the judge think is prurient? But that's really the only way to do it, because these things are all contextual, right? Uh, yes. Obviously, a picture of a four-month-old naked child could be child pornography. It could be lewd. But that doesn't mean that it is, right? Sometimes a pipe is just a pipe, and sometimes, you know, a, a picture of a naked baby is just a picture of a naked and baby. And here's the stupidest part about his theory to me. He says that having a baby reach for a dollar bill makes the baby equivalent to a sex worker. Mm, nice. Give me a nice, break. Nice, 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 yeah, nice. I mean, <laughs> unless this baby was a real prodigy, uh, right. you know, four months. Yeah. Uh, I, Plus, I think the dollar and fish hooker added in post regardless. The baby's just swimming. So it's hardly hardly scarring to his you know, four-month-old self. Yeah. So I'm sure they'll, they'll probably uh, cut a deal. They'll probably settle for a few dollars. Seven dollars. But this perhaps... He'll keep himself in the news, which is fun. This perhaps is a perfect example of the fact we have too many lawyers. It is time for Guess the Verdict. Uh, Connor, are you uh, psyched up for, psyched. for this question? Yes. So I always uh, lay me. out the facts. For Connor, he gets to guess who wins, who loses in uh, a court case. So here are the facts. A Pentecostal preacher from Floydada, Texas, and 19 parishioners decide to drive away in four cars because they believe the devil is coming. 
Sure. On the way, they decide their clothes are possessed. So they take them off and they throw the clothes away. In there. Then they run out of gas. The 20 nude Pentecostals then pile into one car. These are not not clowns. These are 20 nude Pentecostals piling into one car, squeezing five people into the trunk. Sure. When the police try to stop them, the driver tears down a fence around a baseball stadium. They are arrested. Sure. Connor, uh, what do you think happened? Uh, How did this criminal case turn out? I think that this is Texas. uh, Remember... The First Amendment protects yeah. the right of religious freedom. This is true. I, I don't I, want to influence your guess, but I just right. wanted to add that as a postscript. I, I would say that that, that uh, the the we've got competing interests here. We've got religious freedom. We've got Pentecostalism uh, on the one hand, and I think in Texas that has a lot of weight. I think a lot of people say, "Look, these people are very religious in what they do in in pursuit of their religion." I'm going to give them cut them a lot of slack. On the other hand, we've got the puritanical notion uh, that. Uh, uh, that, you know, you shouldn't have 20 naked people piled into one car. Nakedness is bad. Sex is bad. I'm from Texas and I'm a little repressed. Um, so, you know, maybe... There's no I, sex involved. There was just nudity and a Buick. Sure. If you have 20 people in a car, somebody's accidentally having sex. I mean, come on. So <laughs> what is sex anyway? Really, if you got 20 naked people sliding around on top of each other in a car, I think they're all having sex. That's a subject of a different podcast. It is. And I'm looking forward to next week. But... I think in this case, because the Pentecostals have always sort of been looked down on by other uh, sects as sort of wackos. Oh, they talk to snakes and they're wild. So I, I don't think they get enough sympathy. I think there's some. I don't know if they some, talk to them. They handle them. That's true. And they sure. speak in tongues. Yeah, they do wild. not speak in the snake's tongues. It's different. Yeah. Oh. Okay. So uh, I think that they they probably uh, get the hammer brought down and they get some uh, some charges for public nudity and breaking down the sign and fleeing from the cops. And I think they, uh, they go to the slammer. You're right. They yes. were forced to pay six hundred dollars to fix the fence. That's good. That's Texas That's close, close justice. Texas Very justice. good. You're, you're back uh, back on a roll on yes. just the verdict. So I, I mentioned at the top of the episode to uh, talk about the world's best time management book. Uh, it's called. Um, it is called 4,000 Weeks Time Management for Mortals. It's by Oliver uh, Blakeman. And, Ooh, good title. Yeah. And, and the reason I thought about it is because something you mentioned before we started the episode, namely uh, an intriguing tweet that you saw about a broken window. And yeah. Why don't you tell us about the, the tweet, and I can tell you how it fits into uh, yeah, my I'm praise for this a book. A musician and music teacher named Daniel Howe, H-O-W-E, uh, who uh, is a, someone I stumbled across on Twitter. I'd never seen him before, but he told a pretty good story about... A broken window in his house. A neighbor kid smashes it, um, and he, you know, it's a he. It's a little tiny basement window, but it it lets bugs in and doesn't light his basement if it's all boarded up. So he he does try to get around to fixing it, and he calls for an estimate. And the estimate guy says, "Oh, it's going to be really expensive. It's built into the foundation. It's going to be tough to bring out. It's a lot of labor." And he, oh, okay, he puts it off, and then uh, he uh, he he looks into weatherproofing all his windows and and getting double pane glass. And the estimate for that is like fifteen thousand dollars. And it sort of gets conflated with this broken window. And he's, oh, my gosh, this is so much money. I can't afford this. And, you know, I've got a teacher's salary. And, and so I, I, I got kids to raise. And so he just keeps putting it off. And it bugs him. It nags him. And it goes for years. It bugs him. And it nags him. And finally, they're selling their house. And he got, uh, uh, he's got to... Uh, to fix up the house because you can't get an FHA loan if the house is in disrepair, which includes things like broken windows and all that stuff. So he says, okay, I got to actually do it. And he, you know, pries off the boards and he takes a look at it and he's thinking about all the labor costs of chiseling this frame out of the window. And <laughs> this guy gave him an estimate years ago. It's been weighing on his mind. T- takes some WD-40 and says, it's going to have to, you know, fix it anyway. It's not going to cost more after I try. 
And he just yanks the thing right out. Comes out in five seconds. Takes it to the hardware store and they say, oh yeah, here's $12 a glass to fix it. Boom, done. And for years it had ruined his life. In years it had weighed on him and it keeps coming back up. And it's conflated with these other problems, these other difficulties in his life. Oh, $15,000 to re-weatherproof the whole house and it's difficult and complex and expensive. And so he just doesn't do it. He just doesn't get it done and doesn't earn any benefit from the worry and the work that he could put in. And finally, when he actually does it, it's the week he moves out of the house and they don't even get to benefit from his effort. And all that stress came for for nothing. And somebody else is the one who's going to have a well-lit, bug-free basement for it. So what's the lesson here? Well, maybe 4,000 weeks is, is going to tell us what the lesson is. But for me, the lesson is that, you know, we all let these small things uh, affect our lives when, you know, a tiny little bit of effort and, and energy, uh, you know, that gets you moving to solve a problem can create a better life for you for the remainder of your 4,000 weeks. Yeah, a- absolutely. I think that that is the lesson. Uh, the, this book by Oliver Berkman called 4,000 Weeks Time Management for Mortals is it's mostly philosophical, actually. It, it gets into some practical tips, the kind of, you know, how-to things that, that people buy books for to stop procrastination mm-hmm. and be more efficient, you know, work smarter, not harder. But mostly, uh, 99% of the book is talking about the fact that you can't do it all. You and a lot of people spend the bulk of their lives trying to do their to-do list and, and not focusing on the fact that they're never going to complete it. And so they're always very frustrated by it. And so his argument is you really want to live in the moment. You want to, you know, smell the flowers, uh, appreciate, uh, appreciate the current situation. Now, in his appendix, he has a practical tip, and this might have helped the guy with the window. And the practical tip is, look, figure out the 10 or 15 things that you really need to do in your life that are most important. And then of those, pick the three that are the most important that you really need to do right now and work on the three. And do not go to four through 15 until you've finished one of the three. Mm-hmm. Only when you finish one of the top three, do you then pluck one of from four to 15 and yeah. put it in the test. So that's good. a good, it's a good tip. I like but that. again, it, this is just, you know, a drop of ink in his ocean of advice, mm-hmm. which is philosophical. My problem with his concept of, you know, all that matters is the present, you know, your life consists of present moments. Yes, of course, it's true. In a philosophical sort of temporal sense, there is no such thing as past and future because past is gone future isn't here all we have is the current nanosecond but i mean let's face it the past is important because if you don't learn from the past you're really going to screw up in the future the problem with the past sometimes is like this guy with the window you relitigate grievances you play out these scenarios of people who offended you and bad things that happened to no real purpose. Yeah. If you applied critical thinking to something that happened in the past, whether it's good or bad, and said, how can I learn from this? How can I do it again? If it was good, replicate it. How can I avoid it? That would be great. So you have to think about the past, in spite of what Mr. Berkman says, to learn from it. In terms of the future, obviously, I mean, he acknowledges, you know, you can smell all the flowers you want. You still have to get your kid to school. You still have to feed your kid. You have to go to the grocery store today to plan for the future. But there again, it involves applying critical thinking and productive thinking 
today in your current moment to make sure that the future works out okay. If you simply fret about what might happen tomorrow, the next day, in a month, and you don't apply critical thinking skills and say, what do I have to do today to make sure my future is going to be good? Then you're going to be in trouble and Mm -hmm. you're wasting your time if you spend a lot of time fretting pointlessly about the future, just as you're wasting time if you're, you know, relitigating and ruminating and resentfully plowing the ground of the past. I mean, yeah. it's like, you know, you and I've talked about the, the Dale Carnegie's wisdom, and, and he has a really good four-part chunk of advice regarding the future. He says it's fine to worry about the future, but you have to look at it in four contexts. Number one, what is the worst that can happen? You figure out, okay, I've got, this is a pretty horrible scenario. I got it in my mind. Number two, what are the percentage chances that's going to happen? And if you look at it dispassionately and not so emotionally, you're going to realize the chances of something really bad happening are really low. Number three, if the bad thing happens, can you live with it? Most people are going to say, yeah. And fi- fourth and finally, okay, what can I do today to minimize the chance that a really horrible thing is going to happen in the future? So, you know, whether you, you pluck some wisdom from Oliver Berkman or, or a few techniques from, uh, from Dale Carnegie, I think your example about the broken window is a great one. I mean, it really focuses on how people can just spend so much time and waste so much energy for months or years when all they had to do was sit down and either put it on Oliver's list of three and Mm -hmm. damn it do it before you go to items four through 15 or just just sit down and critically think about how to solve these problems yeah absolutely so i think we've solved so many problems in this podcast we'll send it to the smithsonian great idea have a great week everybody see you next time on too many lawyers Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.